All right. Um, you can track down a Bible. There are Bibles in the book racks in front of you or somewhere nearby. And on the Bibles that we have here, we're on page 982, 982. And uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll look at verses 1 to 11. So uh, let's turn there. I'll read these 11 verses. We'll pray and uh, we'll get to work. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we've opened your word that you would speak to us. We want to hear your voice. Lord, we pray that through that work of the Spirit, through the word, that that we would be changed by it that we would experience the risen Christ in these moments, and you would help us to consider how to live faithfully for his glory. Amen. Amen. We're doing a series right now going through this letter, the letter called First Peter, and we're looking at uh, how Peter was instructing the first century church to deal with hostility. In fact, we've subtitled it, uh, Resilient Hope in Hostile Times. We recognize that in the first century, believers in Christ were going through all manner of difficulties. And we want to be the kind of church today that is prepared to suffer for the sake of the name. We want to be the kind of church today that is ready for the difficulties that might come our way. And so in our passage here today, we find three things. We find a lesson about our relationship to sin and how that's been radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And then secondly, we find out about this coming judgment that the Lord is going to return and he's going to make all things right and We want to be the kind of people who are ready for that return and who are uh, preparing for that and anticipating that. And then finally, we learn something about the commitment that we should have to the community of believers in the meantime. We want to to double down on our love for the local church. So you'll find these three things here as we work our way through the text. Let's get to work with this first concept of sin and how our relationship to it has dramatically changed. Having become Christians— We now look at the evil desires that were resident in our hearts, that still are resident in our hearts, and we recognize God is making us new. 
And how we deal with the world then is very different. Look at verse 4 again. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Whenever we find a therefore, we ask, what is it therefore? What is it referring to? And we have to go back, and what we find is that just previous to this section, there was a, there was a, a couple of paragraphs that described the work of Christ, the good news of the gospel, how God has saved and redeemed us. So we look back and we find that the Lord, Jesus Christ, suffered a sacrificial death in our place to bring us to God. The, Jesus Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, chapter 3, verse 18. We also find out that the salvation that we experience comes through that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We are saved by placing our faith in him, and we are washed and remade through the experience of trusting him and joining him in baptism in his death, burial, and resurrection. And finally, we find that he is vindicated, that though he died in the body, he is alive right now, that he has risen and is at the right hand of God the Father with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. So the Lord is victorious and has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And so when we read the word, therefore, we're banking on that truth. Because of the gospel, because of the gospel and Christ's suffering in his body, what we need to do is arm ourselves with a similar mindset. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. It's telling us you actually have to take this truth and you have to apply it to yourself. You have to arm yourself. So the reason why we're having difficulties today is because I bought a new computer. Uh, the one that we've been using um, for many months now belonged to a volunteer. And that volunteer isn't available to help us and we're not, we're not able to, to use their machine. And so this week, I actually bought three different computers. The first two were refurbished, and they were garbage. And I got them, and one of them had just a sticker on it to try to make it look like it had been cleaned up. Uh, it was weird. Sent those back, and I went and got a brand new one. And um, that's what we're trying to get working today. We've been working on it diligently all day yesterday and this morning, and we can't seem to get it to work as we need it to. But here's the thing. When you buy a computer, um, I'm not very tech savvy. So I might be absolutely wrong in what I say right now. I'll try a different illustration here in a moment too. But when you buy a computer, sometimes they say, okay, here's your device, and along with it, you get some sort of software that's an antivirus. Are you guys familiar with that? You get like, it's a package deal. You get your computer, and then you also get this software, and the software is antivirus uh, software, so you install it on your computer. It'll protect you from all sorts of things. Now, as I recall, the couple of times that I've bought a computer and gotten a deal like that, I've never installed the antivirus software. Um, I don't know if they're doing it back there with this new one. I don't, I don't know, but I never do it. And so if somebody says, hey, do you know what antivirus software is? I say, absolutely. Do you know what it does? Sure. Do you think it's a good idea? Yeah, I agree with all of that. Here's the problem. I have not armed the device with it. Even though I have possession of it, even though I can register it to my name, even though it's paid for and all these different things, the device, the, the software is not operational yet. Does that make sense? Okay, here's another illustration, because maybe what I just described was absolutely wrong. The tech people will tell me later. Here's another one. Imagine if an intruder breaks into your home, and you have something to protect your family with, but you don't have it on your person. 
It's somewhere. It's like maybe in the bedroom or it's, you know, locked away somewhere. If, that, if somebody comes in, you might have something to protect you, but if you're not armed with it, it might not be very effective. That's kind of the point that's being made right here, that Christians are a people who need to arm ourselves with this truth. We need to take something that we know, that we understand, that we could affirm, and we need to do more than just understand it and affirm it. We actually need to arm ourselves with it, meaning we have to take this truth and put it to work. We have to take the truth of the suffering of Christ, and we have to make it operational in our souls. So many Christians can affirm that Christ went to the cross and died. They can affirm that that is true. They can affirm that that is a significant reality. They can affirm that it, is, that it is on account of his suffering that we are saved. Even still, many Christians have not made that truth operational. Meaning, I know that, but it doesn't really affect me. I know that to be true, but it doesn't really inform how I live my life. Peter is saying here, we have to take the truth of the gospel and put it to work in our souls. We have to take the, the reality of the suffering of Christ and we have to onboard it so that it's something that's a feature of how we interface with the world. We have to recognize that the suffering of Christ is not some theoretical reality, but it's a very practical reality. And we can entrust ourselves then to him and by believing that truth, it actually changes how we deal with the world. We are done with sin is how it's put here. Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, the Bible does not give us permission to say sin is just gone. It's no longer relevant. We never struggle with it. Uh, it doesn't have any influence over us as believers. That's not true. The, the Bible does present consistently a picture that sin is very much still a feature of life in a fallen world after trusting in Christ. But it is true in this way. If you become a Christian who is arming yourself with the reality of the gospel, the, the power of sin has been decisively broken through Christ. Now, if you're putting that to work in your soul, your relationship to sin is absolutely different. You, you no longer persist to do these things that you know are offensive to God, and you no longer do them, certainly when you're thinking about what your salvation costs the Lord. I was reading my personal devotions this week, and I ended up in, in the letter to the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, and it says essentially the same thing. In Hebrews 10, 26, it tells us that if you're a Christian, you cannot continue in a sinful manner of life. And in fact, it puts it like this. It says, if you do that, then what you're actually doing is you're trampling the Son of God underfoot and you are treating the blood of the new covenant as an unholy thing, and you are insulting the spirit of God's grace. You hear how strong that language is? If you understand what Calvary means for your salvation, if you understand the suffering of the Lord, then you cannot look at sin and just think, this is no big deal. You begin to recognize that to sin would be to offend God's grace. It would be to treat the Lord with contempt. It would be to treat him as insignificant and what he did for you as no regard. So we are a people who arm ourselves with that truth. For me to be saved took the Son of God going to Calvary. Therefore, for me to sin would be inappropriate. And, and I, I do not want to disregard 
the, the struggle against sin here, I don't want to pretend that it's no small thing, but Christians, we need to be a people who are constantly revisiting the cross work of Christ. That's why we take communion week by week, because we want to remember the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the broken body of Jesus Christ so that we would have a, a kind of a, a stake in the ground every week that we say, look, this is what my salvation entails. The Lord died for me. So now we have a new way of life that's open to us. Look at verse 2. As a result of this, people who have armed themselves with this reality, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Because we're a new creation now, we don't go around going, hey, what would make me uh, happy in this moment? What are my evil desires that I'm going to try to gratify? No, instead, the, the main feature about a Christian, a new creation, is they're thinking about, what's the will of God for me? What is it that the Lord would want me to do? What are the things that would bring him pleasure? What are the things that would be honoring to him? So those who have entrusted themselves to Christ no longer live their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, this former way of life is both described for us and spoken of in a past tense here in verse 3. It says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. There have been some moments where I call to mind some of the very stupid things that I've done in my life. And I think about those, and, and I, it's so disheartening. If it weren't for the gospel, it could be a crippling thing to do this. But you remember some of those, that former way of life and some of those evil things that you did in the past. And this is saying, look, that has gotten enough of your life already. That former way of life, you spent enough time in the past doing these sorts of things. And it describes it. It goes on in verse 3 to say, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. This is the former way of life. So Christians are not to engage in these sorts of things because our desire is to do the will of God. That stuff has had enough of our life already. So now we want to live in this new way, in this way that is pleasing to God. That former way of life no longer has sway over us. We are a new creation. But now that we make those sorts of choices where we say, hey, I'm going to live for God, and I'm not going to live for evil earthly pleasures. Evil earthly pleasures, they're the self-centered thing that we say, I'm going to do whatever makes me feel good right now. Cultural narrative that we have in our society is something like this. Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever makes you happy. And in fact, if somebody tries to threaten that happiness, they're a problem. Do what makes you happy. The biblical narrative, the biblical worldview that's presented from Scripture is not just do whatever makes you happy. It's deny yourself and take up your cross. It's do what the Lord is asking you to do, and that will result in a happiness that isn't just momentary, but it's permanent. It's eternal. That's a far better trade. So do what the Lord is asking you to do. No longer live in these evil desires of the former way of life. Now, when you do that, you're going to be put out of step with the rest of the world. In fact, the rest of the world will begin to look at you, and they will despise you. In fact, I think we're getting to a point where if we say we're going to do what God wants us to do, people will no longer just say, hey, good for you. We're happy for you. Uh, good for you. In fact, we're getting to the point where if you say, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, it's not good for you. It's, I can't believe you would do that. There's a, a growing hostility to the ways of Christ. So look at verse 4. 
they, the unbelievers, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. If you commit to the will of God, people are going to look at you, and they're going to be surprised that you are unwilling to do the sort of things that they want to do. And they will see that as a problem, and in fact, they'll begin to speak ill of you. They'll heap abuse on you. So my question then, as we think about our new relationship to the sinful desires and this change and this social displacement, my question would be, are are we ready for this? Are you committed to God in such a way that if it gets harder for you, and if people start to slander you and speak ill of you, are you actually in a situation where you could say, I'm going to do what the Lord wants, even if it's incredibly challenging? Even if I'm, I'm verbally abused by my colleagues, I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. And the reason why is because I'm following the Lord who suffered and died for me. And the paradigm that we found in the letter of 1 Peter over and over again is, there's a paradigm of the gospel that says this, suffering first, glory to follow. I'll suffer right now momentarily, but glory's coming. And I will share with my Lord in that glory forever. Are you ready for that? The second thing we find here is this coming judgment. We find it in verses 5 to 7. So we we are made aware of this reality that the Lord is going to return and he's going to set all things right. Um, Look at verse 5. It says, they will have to give an account. This is the unbelievers. They will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is coming back, and this tells us he is ready to judge the world, which is surprising because in the first case of his coming, when he came during the first advent, people thought that's what he's coming to do initially, originally. The Lord's going to come. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to judge the earth. He's going to set everything right. And instead of doing all of that and onboarding all of that in that first advent, he came in humiliation, and he came with the invitation of grace and forgiveness And then he suffered for it, and he was executed for it, and he was glorified. And he's risen and at the right hand of God the Father. But then the Bible tells us he's going to come again. In the second coming of Christ, he will come ready to judge. He will come to make all things right. He will come not in humiliation, but in glory. And he will come, and he will examine the world, and he will make things right again. And... He's coming to judge the living and the dead, which we can fly by that and not really realize how significant it was for them. He's coming to judge those who are alive right now, but also those who have passed away already. And that was, the, that was a main thing in the, in the first century. People were asking the question, hold on, why is it that somebody can follow the Lord who's resurrected and the promise is, is that they are, the, the resurrection power is available to them. And why is it that they're following him and they still died? That didn't make sense in that first century. What's going on with that? And that's a question in our letter. It's a question in other uh, New Testament letters. For instance, two letters were written to a church in Thessalonica. And that was one of the main issues, one of the main reasons for writing. People were dying and the church was going, wait a minute. What about the promise? What about what God is planning to do? What what about our friends who are following him and they died? And Paul writes and he says, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Those who have died in Christ, it's not that the promise is, you know, voided for them. The promise is very much still in force. 
when he comes again, those who have died in Christ will rise. And in fact, those who are alive in Christ, this is what Paul's saying, you can read it for yourself in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, those who are alive in Christ presently, they will not go before those who have already died. In other words, Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. He's going to settle all accounts. There's no shortcut. There's no way around this thing to bypass it. The Lord is coming, and he is ready, and he will make all things right. Verse 6 says, For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So from a human vantage point, it looks like people who are following the Lord and have suffered and died lost. It looks like they made a grave mistake. It looks like they failed in regard to the body. It looks like they have died according to human standards. But in fact, they're alive. They live according to God in regard to the spirit. They will be vindicated just like the Lord himself was vindicated when he rose. So they've not been rejected by God. In fact, they're chosen by God and precious to him. They're born again into a living and enduring hope. And so believers recognize that the Lord is coming and we had better be ready for his coming. In fact, verse 7 says as much, the end of all things is near. It's saying he's coming and the end of all things is at hand, which is a weird thing to say 2,000 years ago, right? Oh, it's, come, it's right around the corner. It's near. But then we look at how God considers time, his relationship to time, very different. In the second letter that Peter writes, he tells us that for God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So to say that it's near for him, he's not being inaccurate there. He just deals with time different than we do. So it's near. It's near at hand, and we better be ready for it, and it could happen very, very soon. And that's the point that's being made here. We had better be prepared for it. Are you living right now? in expectation of the Lord's return. Over and over, the Lord himself taught these lessons. Uh, when he was on earth in his earthly ministry, he said, listen, when I come again, it'll be like a thief in the night. People will not expect it. When I come, it will be like a bridegroom who has been delayed, and a part of the bridal party has kind of given up on waiting, and they've no longer prepared themselves for his arrival, and some of them are still prepared, but I'm going to come, and some will be surprised by it. Or he says, I'm like a worker. Uh, I'm like a, a master who gives an assignment to the workers and I depart for a while. And, and in my absence, some of the workers are faithful and they just keep after it and they recognize he might come any moment. We, we had better be found faithful when he comes. But some of them, because of the delay, they'll give up on being faithful. The Lord over and over again says, hey, when I come, you might be surprised by it. And in fact, says, you, you should be ready then. And that's what Peter is saying here as well. He's saying the end of all things is very near. So are we the kind of people who are anticipating that and waiting faithfully and working in the meantime? That's who we ought to be, a people who are ready for the Lord to come. Well, in the meantime, then, the third lesson that we find here is that we have an assignment in the meantime, and it's this. While we wait for the Lord, what we should be doing is loving the local church. In other words, if you look at verses 7 to 11, it tells us in the meantime, knowing that the Lord is going to come back, the thing that we do is we love and serve and glorify God in our real relationship. 
Let's look at it now. The end of all things is, is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you might pray. First off, he's telling us, when you think about the end, you better be clear-headed about it. When you think about the end, you better be alert and sober-minded. You better be prepared for it. Versus being hysterical. Uh, I. Howard Marshall puts it like this. He says, fear and worry stimulated by persecution can easily lead to hasty and ill-conceived judgments. A lot of times when people think the end is near, instead of being clear-headed and sober-minded, they're fanatical. They go hysterical. They begin to become fearful and erratic and overly confident or intoxicated with their ideas of how everything is going to unfold. This is telling us, no, Christians need to be aware that the Lord is coming back, and so we better be very sober-minded in our estimation of that. We've got certain things that we should be doing And we need to be the kind of people who aren't saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the end is at hand. We need to be the kind of people who are doing what the Lord has assigned to us in the meantime. And you're going to see that here in just a moment, but it looks more like this, loving and serving other people, proclaiming the gospel of God's grace, making known the invitation to turn to him and experience eternal life, not going crazy or being fanatical or getting erratic or or, um, fanatical or... uh, are doing all these different things. Listen, I get, I get all kinds of YouTube links and all kinds of stuff throughout the week of, hey, the end, it's here, and here's what's going on, and it doesn't sound very clear-headed to me. It sounds intoxicated to me. And this is something that we need to be mindful of because it tells us it has an influence over how we pray. It says, the end is at hand, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Um, I wonder if there are some prayers nowadays that are not pleasing to God. It's an interesting concept, but it showed up over and over in this letter. Some, some prayers are not the kind of thing that the Lord wants to hear. And we need to be the kind of people who, when we even talk to God, we, we are confident that we are communicating in a way that's pleasing to him. Well, here's what we're to do. Look at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Above all, okay, top shelf, Main thing to be done out of everything else you might be doing while you await the Lord's return. Above all, here's what you're to do. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's, in, it's implying here there's plenty of sin to go around. If you're going to deal with real people, it's going to be hard. But our job in the meantime is to love and to love other people deeply and cover over those different things. In a divided and hostile world, what we need is a united and loving and gracious church. We need people who are committed one to another. And we need this love to be tangible and real. In fact, look at verse 9. It says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's one thing for me to stand up here and to do the benediction and to say, I love you guys, and you to say, we love you too, Cor. And then that's it. That's just the sentiment that we share. And we go, hey, that's a great idea. It's a whole other thing to say, here's my table. Here's my life. Here's how I'm going to serve you in real time. That is what this is calling us to do. Love each other deeply, and don't just do it in theory. Do it in real time. Offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. Open your life to one another and serve and bless each other without complaining about it, but, but love each other deeply. Now, here's, here's what it's, it's basically saying. As we await the Lord's return... We're to love the local church in real time. One of the things that I've noticed in the last two and a half years 
is a lot of Christians have struggled with this. So as things got harder, instead of pressing into Christian community, Big C Church, a lot of people said, I'm going to withdraw from other people, and I'm just going to find people who think exactly like me. And it might just be the smallest group of us, but that's where I'm going to live, and I'm going to be just comfortable and happy there. This is pushing us in a different direction. There are so many Christians right now, and I'm not just talking about our church. I think this is a a big C issue, um, capital C church issue. There are a lot of Christians right now who who are living a disembodied experience, meaning they are not in connection, in vibrant connection with the head of the church and with his body, real people. And we need to be able to say, hey, listen, while we're waiting for the Lord to come back, we're going to make it our ambition to love each other and to actually serve and bless each other in very real and tangible ways. Because when we do that, as you'll see, it will glorify God. But we have gifts then, and those gifts are to be used in the service of other people. Look at verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. God gives us, through his spirit, he gives us spiritual gifts, and those gifts are not just for you. In fact, primarily, those gifts are for others. Whatever spiritual gift you might possess, God has entrusted that gift to you. You are to use it for the building up of the body of Christ. It's for other people. You're to use your gift as a steward of God's grace in its various forms, and you're to use it to serve other people. It's very clear there in our text. So, So what we're doing right now is we're figuring out, okay, how has God gifted us? And then how can we use those gifts to to build up the body of Christ? That would be glorifying to him. Gives us two examples here, speaking and serving. Verse 11 says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Radical concept. And it's one that I wrestle with every single week. But in the name of Christ, there's opportunities within the local body of Christ to open your mouth and for God to communicate. Whether that's me standing up here or whether that's our facilitators at the tables here in a short little bit, sitting around a table and speaking words of life to other people. And when we do that, we're actually serving the church, but we're communicating the voice of God if we're faithful to him. But that's what we're able to do. We take the gifts that God has given to us and we use it in God's name. It's surprising to me because sometimes I listen to just how I talk in, in life and I go, man, this dude is weird and has a hard time communicating anything in a normal way, and that's me. And then I have to stand up here every week and go, okay, God, you better take over, because otherwise we're all in trouble here. But it says, if you speak, speak as one who's speaking the very words of God. Then it says, if anyone serves, whatever service that might be, they should do so with the strength that God provides. When you're serving, whatever assignment you might have, whether it's in the nursery or the kids' area or greeting or serving in the community with the different partnerships that we have with various organizations or whatever it is, if you're serving your family, if you're serving, however it is that you serve, do it in the strength that God supplies, that he gives you by his spirit the ability to do something beyond yourself. And here's the reason why, verse 11, so that, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. When we love each other, and practice hospitality, and use our gifts for the building up of the church, the thing that happens is it draws attention to God. In fact, earlier in the letter, if you recall, 
He said it like this, live such good lives that even though the pagans accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Be so persistent in doing these sorts of things that even if other people are heaping abuse on you, they see your commitment to one another and they acknowledge that as a work of God. And on the day that he visits, they will glorify God and praise will be brought through Jesus Christ for his glory and his power. And he tells us in John 13, 35, there's another verse here that came to mind as I was preparing. When, when the Lord was um, readying his disciples for his departure, he had a lot to say to them, but one of the kind of pregnant things that he said about their relationship in his absence, he said this, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. One of the parting words that he gave to his followers was, listen, in my absence, one of the things that's going to be proof of your commitment to me is your willingness to look at other real people and love them in my name. So church, what we need to be doing while we're awaiting our Savior is we need to be displaying the glory of God in the way that we love and serve one another. So as we saw here this morning, our relationship to sin has changed dramatically. We no longer live for these earthly evil desires, but we live for the will of God. Doing that will put us in a situation where society and culture will become more and more hostile to us, but we resolve to do what God wants, come what may. And we commit to awaiting his return and his judgment, and we're confident that he's going to come and he's going to settle all accounts and make all things new. And in the meantime, we have a job to do. It is to commit ourselves to the local church, to loving and serving real people for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now, as we've opened your word together, we're praying that by your spirit, you would help us to commit ourselves to the things that are pleasing to you. We pray, Lord, for your help in these matters. We, we understand that the agenda that we dream up looks very different than your agenda. The things that you want us to be engaged in, they do not come naturally, so we're going to need more anointing and more of your spirit. We're praying, God, that you would help us to love and serve each other, to practice hospitality without grumbling. And we pray that there would be a tangible experience of your glory as people look to us and see the risen Christ living in and through us. We pray in his name. Amen.